Welcome to Policy Pod, PORF podcast. This episode is part of the Raisena Dialogue 2021, India's annual premier conference on geopolitics and geoeconomics. The conference is hosted by ORF in partnership with the Ministry of External Affairs, Government of India. Hello everyone and thank you for joining us to watch this pre-recorded session the title of which is Restart and Reset dedicated to improving the lives of children. We have um many grants in the fields of both climate change and um gender equality for girls. Um in particular we've launched a new program called Girl Capital um which is advancing girls and women's rights by supporting their education, promoting skills building including technical and vocational skills and life skills, financial autonomy and addressing social norms as well as sexual reproductive health and rights. And so I'm so excited to be here today to talk about how climate and the green recovery and gender equality intersect and it's a real privilege uh, to have these women leaders with us um and we're going to hear some really remarkable stories I'm sure about the activities in their communities and circles. I'm joined by uh, Bhakti Sharma, a village leader from Madhya Pradesh. Welcome Bhakti. Uh, Minush Safiq, who is the director of London School of Economics and Political Science, uh, where I went to university. Um, Geraldine Ang, um, policy analyst for green investment at the OECD. Hello, Geraldine. And Delphine O, oh, the ambassador at large and secretary general of the Generation Equality Forum that's coming up uh, this summer, led by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of France. So, a warm welcome to all of you, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, before we start i just want to point out um what we all know and which which sits at the heart um of this conversation which is that gender inequality is a really a story of foregone uh, well-being and prosperity um by not improving women's access to economic um and other rights we are in fact restraining growth we're also losing an opportunity to break the intergenerational cycle of poverty because when women are educated and have the opportunity to participate economically their children tend to be better nourished also go to school and also thrive it has huge multiplier effects and we also know that investment in a green recovery is going to have huge multiplier effects both of these focusing on gender and focusing on a green recovery will deliver um a labor intensive recovery that we all need with massive economic multipliers and we should bring these together but unfortunately conversations about green recovery and an inclusive recovery are often held in in silos um so what we're going to try and do today is bring those together and have an integrated conversation that embeds the resilience of communities at the heart of the recovery by providing opportunities in the green economy green economy and improving gender equity um i think it's really important to point out that environmental damage and women's unpaid work are often ignored by economic orthodoxy they're seen as externalities we want to bring them into the center of the conversation by recognizing the huge contribution uh, that women make to society and making sure that protecting the environment is integral to our recovery 
um, this will have uh, much better impacts for all of us. Um, and so in this conversation, I'm hoping that we'll look for integrated solutions. Um, and I'm really excited this year that we're going to have a range of major events around the world that give us an opportunity to present that integrated view. Uh, we've got the, the well, Generation Equality Forum, as I mentioned, uh, coming up this summer. We've then got the Food Systems Summit, and indeed women are often at the heart um, of agriculture and indeed new forms of agriculture such as agroecology and regenerative agriculture. And then we have COP26 at the end of the year where we hope to see a step change in our action on climate change. All of these present opportunities to provide integrated solutions and ensure that those who are usually forgotten, usually left behind, are actually put at the heart of decision making, um, that access to finance um, is going to be a core part um, of the delivery for these, these communities and women in particular. So I'm going to move on to our panel discussion now. Um, and the way this is going to work is that I have three questions um, and I'm going to ask one um, to each of the panelists. Um, so I'm going to ask the panelists to keep their replies to two minutes long in the first round. Um, but because we have such an interesting panel, before uh, diving into the, the deep geek of gender equality and the green recovery, I'd really like to hear personal stories um, from each of the panelists. Uh, what drives you as a change maker? Um, and what message do you have for others? So I'm going to start with uh, Bhakti. Welcome. Hi. Thank you, Kate. So, um... You know, I come from an agrarian family background and my father was humble enough to let me stay in this city. So I'm a person who has seen both the worlds, the one of a metropolitan city, um, you know, across the globe and as well as uh, of the villages. And of course, India really stays in the villages. And, um, you know, what, uh, so when I used to visit this village, I used to always feel, you know, one thing that bothered me was that we had more than 600 social developmental policies in our country. So why are these people still living in poverty and scarcity? These people are experts in their own ways, but the only thing is that, yes, they are less illiterate and uh, they, they don't have that exposure. So that's the reason what made them stay in uh, poverty, in scarcity, their voices were unheard. And, uh, if, and if there were political leaders who thought that they could become their voice, it was not because they were used as the form of policy appeasement or the vote banks. And I thought that, yes, I could fill that gap with my education. I could be of good use to them because I was not working on the policy, uh, policy appeasement policies and not on the vote bank. And uh, more than me, it was the people of the village who wanted me uh, to, you know, contest the elections of the Sarpanch and take care of these villages. Uh, so as a change maker, I've not done something very big. What I've done is I've just tried to implement all the government policies necessary at my village one thing and second whatever we did was with whole of honesty and it was corruption free thank you so much bhakti um thank you for joining us and i'm going to move now to minush thank you kate uh yes my name is minush shafiq and uh i guess my story also starts in a in a village in egypt where uh, my mother's family uh, are from and uh, I think I often visited there as a, as a young girl and saw girls who looked just like me, uh, who were working in the fields, who had very few options in their lives. And I had a strong feeling of that could have been me. And the, the role that chance plays in life uh, was something that really stayed with me. I think the other 
part of my personal story is that my family was nationalized in Egypt and we lost all of our assets in the revolution in the 1960s and my my father uh, and with his family immigrated uh, and he always said to me when we left they can take everything away from you except your education and that feeling that education is the key to advancement in life is also something that stayed with me and those two two themes meant that I have always been interested in the architecture of opportunity in a society. What determines who gets opportunity and what role does education play in that? And that has taken me to jobs uh, at the World Bank, uh, where I was vice president, to uh, running the UK's aid program, where I was permanent secretary of the Department for International Development, to, uh, to the IMF, and now to the London School of Economics, uh, where I get to put my belief in education into practice. Thanks, Manoush. Um, I'm now going to move on to Geraldine. Thank you so much, Kate, for the invitation and to ORF as well. It's a pleasure to participate online in the Raise Night Dialogue, uh, short of being there in Delhi, which we all wish, I think. Um, it's been such inspiring uh, introduction from Minouche and Bakti, so mine is more modest that I, I'm com coming from Paris and I do have a diverse background, but I did end up uh, finding myself navigating very well in international environment because of, I think, probably mixed backgrounds as well. And uh, and uh, I've worked for the past decades uh, at the OECD on green finance and investment uh, and very fortunate to have seen such a change in the past decade from, you know, a niche market where uh, you would see only manuals. And for those of you who, who will understand what manuals are, it's men only panels where only white, uh, you know, men uh, would drive the, the, the niche markets on, on finance, finance issues. And, and now look at how much has been achieved. And I have to say, I, I do see that women are a driving force uh, in the emerging green finance uh, issues. Um, for those of you who don't know the OECD, it's, it's an international organization that works to build better policies for better lives. And one of our key priorities in the past decade at the OECD has been to engage with all kind of public and private stakeholders, you know, policymakers, regulators, civil society, investors, businesses, etc., to try to mainstream green issues in finance and investment. And what a what a change we've seen from you know like the niche market where we, we, we would see just such a small interest in green issue and increasingly being mainstream to the point today that uh, I think it would be unpopular not to support green finance as, a, as an investor, as a corporate. Um, and I really think that the, the agenda has been about breaking the silos between different poli policy communities who had very different objectives. And uh, I've, been, I've been very fortunate. I, I happen to be a woman. I'm not sure if it has any impact, but you know, it's true that we see that the market for green finance worldwide is now increasingly led by women, and I, I, I want to believe that this has this had, had a, a positive impact. Um, that that you know the the green finance market is increasingly moving in the right direction at the same pace that we see that women are increasingly more involved in in finance and sustainable finance in particular. Thanks very much, uh, Geraldine. And now over to you, Delphine. Thank you, Kate, and thank you to ORF and Raisin Eye Dialogue for inviting me. My, my story also doesn't start in a little village, it starts in a big French city. Uh, I could have told the story, though, of when I interned in Afghanistan for Action Aid and was faced with the issue of women's rights in Afghanistan and discovered the story 
the actual true meaning of what sorority and female solidarity means. But what I want to stress today is, is the intergenerational aspect of changing, of, cha of being a change makers. And I, when I look at this panel, I can see that this intergenerational fight is being well reflected in the panel. And this is what we'd like to achieve with the Generation Equality Forum, as you can hear in the very name of this very important feminist gathering, the largest in the last 25 years since the Beijing conference, what we'd like to underline and how we want to drive change is to bring together all generations. My generation, you know, the 30 and something, uh, the older generation has, who has been fighting since the 60s, the 70s, and who was present in Beijing 25 years ago, and the young generation, the 16, the 17, you know, the Greta Thunbergs and other activists were very radical, were pushing us to actually accelerate change for the next generation. So this is how we mean to uh, implement change by bringing all generations together. Thank you, Delphine. And, and the shocking statistic is that at the current pace, we're only going to achieve gender equality in a century. Um, and that needs to be overcome. And in fact, sadly, COVID has, has sent um, the indicators backwards. Um, in India, for example, female labor force participation is going down. Um, in the US and the UK, it's mainly women of color who've been using their jobs as well as, as young people. So we, we were moving in a direction too slowly and now we've had a setback. So I'm really looking forward to some uh, stories of hope um, and opportunity from this panel. Um, and I'm going to start with uh, with Geraldine. I mean, it's been exciting to see with Kristalina Georgieva at the, at the helm of the, the IMF, uh, talk of green recovery and solidarity coming out of the IMF. Um, so um, so that, that's been a real mark of female leadership there, uh, the right woman at the right time. So Geraldine, you mentioned that you felt that ESG um, was bringing together these agendas, that many women were at the forefront. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience in green finance um, and ESG of late and how that re relates to gender equality? Of course, of course. Thanks, Kate. So I, I must say, uh, you know, the, the very positive story is that I think no one could have predicted five years ago that there would be such a momentum for ESG investing in the financial sector. When I started working uh, on green finance 10 years ago, it was more about, you know, setting policies for green investment on the, on the demand side, you know, like attracting uh, clean energy investment, for example. And yet so much, of course, remains on, on, on other investment like, you know, biodiversity, resilience, etc. But it's true that it started on the demand side. And on the supply side, it's fantastic to see how the COP21 and other international agreements have, have really mobilized the financial community in support of action on climate change. And I, I want to be hopeful and say increasingly more uh, on uh, biodiversity moving forward with the COP15 around the corner, as well as COP26. Um, and, and it's true that, uh, like I was telling you earlier in the introduction, we have seen that the growth of sustainable finance and ESG investing, I mean, now ESG investing is around $17 trillion as of last year. I mean, it's, it's a massive amount of assets and the management that could potentially serve, you know, environmental and social and governance objectives. Uh, so we've seen that massive growth. We've seen that women are leading the transformation. Uh, but it's true that there are still challenges happening and there are still massive, massive barriers. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not a, a surprise to anyone that as the industry is increasingly having an appetite for ESG investing, there will be some significant greenwashing issue and, and the issue of 
credibility, market integrity, you know, like, do we really label everything properly? Uh, do we have the right definitions? Uh, if, if you just put a woman on the board, is it enough? If you just put some climate disclosure, is it enough? And those things are linked because it's about improving ESG good practices. And so I think there's really a, a ramping up in the market. And I have to say, you were, you were just giving the example of the IMF. No one would have expected that central banks, uh, you know, economic policymakers and key institutions would have moved so quickly on climate risk. And I, I must say, this is, this is really a fantastic momentum for action. I think much more needs to be done now that we are getting there on climate risk to incorporate the real economy impact of finance. And I think it's, it's, it links very much to your point at the beginning on breaking the silos, that the financial sector can no longer be disconnected from real economy impact, both on gender and environmental issues. And so this requires moving beyond business as usual, moving beyond short-termism. And I believe personally that it's it's possible that women are driving force behind it. I was just checking a statistics just before the the panel that that women are twice more likely as savers uh, than their male counterparts to to prioritize ESG impact in their investment decisions, and also to say that for them incorporating ESG values matters in their company. So very optimistic that this moves forward, but there are still major challenges moving forward. And I think we need to bridge all the policy communities, all the civil society and, and bridge the communities and break the silos further um, to achieve that change. Thanks, Geraldine. And, and we've also heard, you know, on a, on a geopolitical basis, um, um, the IMF has been talking about a great divergence with um, economies, greater gaps uh, appearing between richer and poorer economies as, as countries struggle to maintain liquidity and some evil even struggle with debt stress. So if those countries are to participate in a green and resilient recovery and provide social protection for their citizens, we really need a complete reset this year um, in terms of the geopolitics of, 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 of solidarity and recovery. Thanks, Geraldine. I'm now going to move over to uh, Minush, and I have to confess I haven't read your book yet, but having read your interview in the Financial Times over the weekend, I will definitely read it. Um, in your deep thinking that you've been doing over the last few months in lockdown, um, tell us how you think gender and the environment can be brought into the recovery and, and what that means for the new social compact that you've been talking about. So thank you, Kate. Um, the, uh, the book is about, uh, the book is called What We Owe Each Other, A New Social Contract. And my argument is that our current social contract is failing our current circumstances. And uh, I'll give you just an example on gender and one on environment. On, on gender, um, you know, for a long time, we thought the problem was getting girls into school. And we've achieved a huge amount in that. Uh, you know, a country like India has now reached full gender parity in primary education and in secondary education. And that is true all over the world. Today, for the first time in history, more women go to university than men around the world, which is a huge achievement. And so in many ways, the, the question is, why aren't we doing better? And why do we still talk about gender pay gaps and all of those things? And I think the main reason is because the social contract is still constructed so that the assumption is that women will look after children and old people for free. Uh, and that is no longer appropriate in a world where most women are educated and working. And so we need to come up with a social contract that allows for 
parental leave. You know, maternity leave says to a woman, you stay home and take care of your child. Parental leave says the family has to come together and share the responsibility for raising their children. And high quality publicly provided childcare says to a family, the state will help you raise your child and make it easy for both of you to continue working. So rethinking family leave policies, also looking at unpaid work. We know that around the world, women do two hours more unpaid work than men every single day. That varies enormously. In Norway, women do 20% more unpaid work than men. In Pakistan, they do 1,000% more unpaid work than men. And so again, rebalancing the social contract within the household around unpaid work would be a way to tap into all of that enormous female talent. And of course, I believe in this for equality reasons, but it's also a fantastic economic argument. Much of the productivity gains achieved in advanced economies like the US and the UK can be attributed to the fact that women entered the workforce in the middle of the last century. And that meant that people got assigned to the jobs that suited them best. And rather than employers just drawing from a narrow pool of men, they were able to draw on a much wider talent pool. So I think that's a really good case for education. On the environment, I'll be brief, but I think the main uh, challenge in terms of our current social contract is that it uh, it doesn't take into account enough future generations. Uh, and our current social contract is one where future generations environmental legacy has been hugely depleted. If you look at the stock of capital that we're leaving the next generation, we're bequeathing them a very big stock of education and a very good stock of infrastructure. But the natural capital, the environmental capital we're leaving for the next generation is has been massively depleted. And we need to redress that with a social contract that takes proper account of the importance of natural capital in the sustainability of our economies and societies. Thanks very much, uh, Minouche. And, um, I was, um, when I was made uh, the first female CEO of my organization, one of my first acts was to equalize paternity leave with maternity leave. Um, and I made the whole organization stand up and applaud the first man that took three months off work. Um, because in the UK, even though people have access to paternity benefits, they often don't take it um, because of social norms. And so we have to, we have to change those. Um, so I'm now going to hand over to Bhakti, who's been doing some amazing work, as you heard in the introduction. Bhakti, uh, tell me what you think really works in terms of uh, women's empowerment in, in the Indian villages where you've been working and what doesn't work so well. Okay, so first I'm going to talk about what doesn't work, okay? So, you know, in many South Asian countries, I've noticed one thing that we have the professional leadership. Okay, so, you know, the leaders would be the same, but the voters change. And obviously this thing uh, comes with a lot of pros and cons. And the cons are that these leaders are always ignorant about some issues. They would never speak about some issues. And they have this particular set of model of development for themselves, okay? Uh, and I'll tell what has worked, because I'm a person who believes in participatory democracy. Uh, and when I say participatory, it does not mean that the numbers have to increase. It is one of the finest model. It would only work when in any panchayat at the grassroots level of democracy, when the voices of the females would be raised, one thing. And secondly, uh, when uh, the role would be more in the decision making. Sorry to say, but the truth today is that many men don't want women to be in the decision making policies at the grassroots level in 
mostly in a lot of countries okay uh, so what has worked for me is um, you know trust establishments a person sitting at a formal chair and expecting people to open up to them would not cater the issues i personally went to uh, the houses of the females where the children would come and sit uh, you know in my laps and they would discuss only it was then when i realized that even in the during the pandemic times they wanted online classes uh, uh, you know in their smartphones and also when the female they came up to me and spoke that you know it is very difficult for them to defecate in the open and within 6 months we made it sure that our panchayat would be open defecation free and also these are the women who first came up to me and said that we want the first approach road should be of the school so that our kids could go and study over there so this was the kind of the trust establishments that we had in our panchayat the second one was that you know the women in my panchayat they knew that whatever they say they'll always have my back so be it fighting against any social taboo be it fighting against child marriage be it fighting against their girls not going to college they knew that i was always there for them trust me in past 6 years not has been a single case of domestic violence if teasing or sexual harassment in our panchayat and the third thing that worked for me was that yes all these women knew that their voices would always be heard so um you know uh, we have to trust in the leadership of women this this is what i've always believed yeah thanks Thanks so much Bakti. It's great to hear those those stories of transformative leadership and the impact it can have very rapidly on people's lives. Uh, it's a great story. Um Delphine, over to you. Um can you tell us a little bit about I mean Bakti's doing the the real work on the ground. What do you think Generation Equality Forum is going to do at the global level that's going to support change makers like the ones we've heard so far? Well, you know, I'd like to build on what Geraldine said about uh, the necessity of bridging the gap between different actors and stakeholders involved in gender equality, as well as what you said, Kate. You said we need a geopolitical reset. Well, both things we're trying to do with the Generation Equality Forum, in the way that we do things, actually, it's the first time. It's the first that a time that a major international conference on gender equality is going to bring together not only member states and the UN and international organizations and the big ones. but also civil society which has been included in our governance since the beginning and is also very much involved in the decision making in order to orientate the results and the deliverables of the forum so it's very important we have been bringing to the same table it hasn't been without challenges uh, you know big multinationals small cso's grassroots feminist organizations foundations member states big small and large and so on and in terms of content we have prioritize six issues as you might know which we have organized around what we call action coalitions each of these action coalitions is going to deliver a concrete road map for change over five years so we've given them you know a very specific timeline with specific goals to be achieved by five years with funding with programs and so on and one of our action coalition is exactly on the topic of today it's called feminist action for climate justice at the inter- intersection of fighting for gender equality and fighting for climate justice and one of the issues that we want to tackle is you know when you talk about gender and climate you can think about women as the victims primary victims uh being impacted heavily impacted by climate change which is true especially in the global south but we also need to think of women as being in the driving seat for fighting against climate change and for biodiversity and so on and what struck me recently is that there's a number of you know covid recovery plans being implemented by member states that really focus much more on having a greener economy on investing more in renewable energies which is all great 
the issue, at least in France, but I, I'm thinking, I think it's true in other countries, is that the percentage of women already working in these industries is very small. And it has been overlooked by some of the government's international organizations. If we want to invest not only in a greener economy, but in a more gender equal economy, we need to make sure that we train more women to be in the driving seat in these new jobs, these, you know, jobs for a more green economy. So you have not only to, you know, invest more in the sectors, but invest more in the in the female workforce in these sectors in order to make sure they're at the driving seat, they are the change makers, and they're also at the decision-making seat. And that's also what we're trying to do with other member states and international organizations, make sure that we train more women to be, you know, climate negotiators, to be sitting at uh, the decision-making table and negotiating table when huge decisions are being made. For instance, at the COP26, uh, which we take place later this, this year in the UK, we want to have more women, you know, being there in the front line in the delegations. Thanks, Delphine. And, and we know that in the same way that women have been um, really, um, have had a differentiated impact um, from COVID, from the pandemic, we know that's also true of climate change. Women are really in the front line of climate change. Um, and you know, there's been quite a lot of research, including recently from the Malala Fund, that shows that there's a really strong um, correlation between uh, increased intensity of weather events and increased incidence of child marriage. And that's because it throws uh, poor families um, back into poverty or deeper poverty, increases their vulnerability, and that increases um, the prevalence of child marriage, because when those families and communities are under stress, um, that's when girls get married far too young. Um, and we also know that women can be at the forefront of the solutions. If you look in the Sahel, the Great Green Wall, which is holding back the tide of desertification in many communities, uh, that agroecology is being done by women, particularly indigenous women. And so we need to make sure um, that not only at the global level, as you say, more climate negotiators are women and they take these issues into account, both in terms of resilience, but also the mitigation opportunities, as well as um, that resources and attention is flowing to those change makers on the ground that are bringing together gender and um, a green recovery um, and solutions that will deliver multiple benefits for their communities, including more nutritious food, um, improved livelihoods for smallholders and so on. So there's lots of potential um, for integration. Um, and so I'd like to move to the last segment of our conversation, which is if you could champion uh, uh, something um, coming out of this meeting or you'd like uh, the listeners to champion something, what would, be, uh, what would be your call to action to bring together gender and a green recovery uh, coming, out of the, uh, coming out of the COVID pandemic? Um, I'm going to start with, um, well, anyone really. Um, back to you, would you like to go first? Yeah, okay, thanks Kate. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, I do need some time for this because if you ask them the call of action, uh, you know, one thing that I've noticed that India was a country, um, you know, for many centuries where women were actually economically strong, but politically and socially not so strong. Okay. Because, um, women knew how to take care of the natural resources, one thing. And second, also that the women, they were taking care of their families, um, but, you know, there, there were stats which were not so good because we got to understand that women have been working at the land for, you know, 85% of women are working on the land. But we, if we talk about their land their ownership, it's hardly 13%. So um, um, being India as an aggregate economy, um, you know, my call of action is that uh, 
women do experience phys- uh, physical and sexual violence at their works um, and uh, and you know they are not politically that active socially they they are always at uh, you know they take a step back so at this point of time uh, i believe that women should be given you know the rights on the property this is one of the judgments of the supreme court of our country second is when we know that 85% of the women they are uh you know um, working on the land so why should not they be given the ownership of the lands thirdly uh, being an agrarian economy uh, i i think that now we need to have a feminization of agriculture uh, where we can have increasing number of women at the manufacturing level at the labor level and obviously we need to have a capacity building program for these women in their autonomous villages wherever they're staying okay so this would actually lead to less commercialization less uh, mass production and yes we could use the sustainable rural uh, model that is also called the gandhian model in our country or we can also say it is like a you know a trusteeship model or community sharing model that could be uh and if you genuinely ask me about what more we can do is that we really need to increase the participation of the women at the political level but it would be only possible when women are economically independent only then they be able to break the glass ceiling of the social taboos which are still prevalent in a lot of places and uh, yes uh when i talk about political participation let me tell you i come from a country where we have 50% of reservation for the women at the grassroots level and in my state madhya pradesh we have 50% of the um, reservation for the women for the municipal elections and yes now the the country is uh, all set together uh, for 30% reservation at the parliament of our country so um, and and yes let us invest in better stories uh, in the success stories of the women exactly like this whole great panel and um, let us also uh, trust again i say let us again trust the the women and the leadership because we saw that during the pandemic the best of the works were done by the women of the different uh, countries of the world uh, th- this is my call of action yeah thank you thanks bhakti and i think you you receive huge support for your call for for greater participation political participation by women and all the surrounding enabling environment that you talked about whether it's uh pre- prevention of violence access to sexual reproductive health and rights education economic empowerment all of those things are really crucial to enable uh women to take leadership positions i'm now going to go to minush um what's your call to action leaving the panel today so i um i i get very frustrated when i see resources not being used well and things going to waste uh it upsets me deeply and for me my call to action would be around we are about to see a massive transformation in our countries around the world as countries transform to a greener economy to transform their agriculture transport systems energy systems and we have the opportunity to have that transformation be in a progressive direction or in a retrograde direction and that that will depend on the incentives we put in place so for me for example it would make huge sense to have a carbon tax so all of the prices in the economy would adjust and every single decision we make would be more carbon reducing because we would have to pay more if we wanted to emit carbon it would make huge sense to me if we created incentives for to subsidize more r&d and investment uh in good things like green new green technologies uh or 
forcing companies to disclose how much environmental damage they're doing. Uh, so creating a set of incentives so that the decisions people make about the future will be greener. Similarly on gender, we have all this female talent around the world, but we're not using it as well as we could because we're holding it back by not supporting women, by better access to childcare, by dealing with unpaid work, and by dealing with inequalities that women face in the labor market. Uh, and I think if we did those things uh, and changed the incentives that all of us face in future decision-making, we would have a world that would be more equal, more green, but also more prosperous because we would be using our resources well. Thank you, Anoush. And it's, it's true, we're facing so many systemic challenges, whether it's the energy system or the food system or the digital economy. Um, and, and if all of those were enabled by uh, unleashing the potential of all of our young people, not just, and, and throughout, and throughout uh, the ages, not just men, that would have a hugely transformative impact. So we've heard from Bhakti about the need for the imperative for political inclusion from Minoush about talent inclusion, if I can put it that way, um, of harnessing um, the missing Einsteins um, and, and many others that are lost by, by not um, advancing at the cause of girls. Um, and Geraldine, over to you, and then I'll go to Delphine after that. Geraldine. Thank you so much, Kate. And uh, Minusha has just said said uh, lots of key points that, you know, with the green recovery and as we transition slowly uh, outside of the pandemic uh, and managing it, we have a chance of building back better, but we also have a gigantic risk of going back to business as usual. And so I think as we are looking at uh, what needs to be done um, and how gender and environment uh, need to come together, I think it's really important to ask ourselves uh, we need, how, are we doing transformational, are, are we going back to business as usual, are we doing incremental change? And we need to reset, you know, the financial system and other governments arrangement to achieve transformative change, to achieve system innovation. And so, I mean, I cannot stress enough, everyone has said it, that there's an urgency of action on climate and biodiversity and other environmental goals. And we are already so late every every year, every month, every day comes. And so as you're, you're asking, Kate, some, some kind of call for action, I would say for everyone working, you know, in a company, in an investment firm, in a government, in, a, in, in an NGO, ask yourself, First, are you exploiting the resources, like, like Minu said, you know, allowing, you know, gender, women and, and other driving force to, 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 try, to try to achieve transformative? But second of all, are you part of business as usual? Or are, and are you part of, you know, the, the incremental? Or are you trying the next step above that you can do in your day-to-day, -day, in your small level or in your bigger level? Are you, are you really trying to be transformative? Because climate change, biodiversity requires systemic embeddement of, of those factors in every decision-making process. It's not about small steps. So I, I'd say, you know, like, yeah, at, you, at each of your level listening today, um, are you doing business as usual or are you, are you transformative? And, and keep, keep, keep trying to go beyond what you're doing already. Thanks. Thanks, Geraldine. And, and it's, it's really important to hear this message of urgency. We haven't got forever. We need transformative change within this decade. And in the context of climate, that means everyone needs to act everywhere now. And we've seen from um, the CA100 
plus group of investors came out with a, a study saying that of all the companies that have committed to uh, net zero uh, targets, none have yet aligned their capex plans with those objectives. So we need to move from long-term objectives to aligning our near-term actions. As Minouche was saying, every decision every day needs to be taken with these things um, uh, factored in. Uh, so the urgency is clear um, and the need for inclusion and systemic thinking is clear. So uh, Delphine, over to you. Well, as you say, Kate, uh, we need to you know, act now, there's a sense of urgency. And so if you need to act now, if you want to act now, there's a once in a lifetime opportunity to act now, and it is the Generation Equality Forum. <laughs> so I'm using this as a platform to call for all individual or, you know, organizations who are change makers, who are wanting to act this very year in the context, of course, of Agenda 2030 and the SDGs and so on. Uh, we've been waiting, you know, the international community, especially feminist grassroots organizations have been waiting for this to happen for 25 years since Beijing in 1995. This was scheduled to happen last year. We had to postpone because of the pandemic. It is taking place. It has taken place already in Mexico. Two weeks ago, the uh, Paris Forum, which is going to be entirely virtual, is going to take place at the end of June and early July, uh, July, uh, sorry, June 30th to July 2nd. It's, the, it's simply the largest international gathering for women's rights. It's going to be virtual, yes, but we're going to have tens of thousands of participants we have dozens and dozens and hundreds of uh, private sector organizations, of businesses, of foundations, international institutions, of member states, of course, but also grassroots feminist organizations, youth organizations, climate justice organizations, who are gathering virtually in order to raise the stakes and to make commitments. So it is the time to make commitments this year, not next year because the forum is taking place this year. We'll have the results in five years from now, but it's very important to take this opportunity. And so there are many ways to get involved, of course, in one of the action coalitions, but also to propose an initiative to launch a project in the Generation Equality Forum will be your platform to make it more visible and also to gather, to garner more support to your own project. So please uh, join us for the forum, as SIF has done, uh, in order to gather momentum and give a new impulse for gender equality. Thanks, Delphine. And we're going to need a lot more multi-stakeholder initiatives to bring all of these issues together at, at every level. Um, and I'd like to thank um, all of our panelists for giving us such a, a, a wide-ranging and yet um, uh, very um, coherent discussion around uh, gendered green recovery. Um, it's been really fun. Um, and, you know, it's clear that climate change and gender inequality are two of the most critical and urgent challenges uh, facing the world, um, um, but we haven't got time to do one and then do the other. We're going to have to do it all at the same time. Um, so I'd like to call on all of our listeners to join the conversation. Uh, don't let it end here. Think about something you've heard today and how you can bring it into your everyday work. And think about every time you have an important conversation, whether it's a, an everyday household or community conversation or a big geopolitical or macro conversation at national and international level, where are the women in your conversation and where is ecological uh, preservation um, at the table? Um, so I'm going to thank Bhakti Sharma, Minus Shafiq, uh, Geraldine Ang and Delphine Oh um, for, for joining this panel. And I'd also like to thank ORF for organizing and supporting such an interesting uh, panel for the Ricina Dialogues. And as 
um, Geraldine said, it's a real pleasure um, to be here online. Um, it's a great sadness not to be in Delhi. Um, I would have been there if I could. Um, and to everyone watching, I hope you're, you're well and you come out of this pandemic with renewed energy to make the world a better place. Uh, so thank you, uh, everyone. And uh, yeah, have a, have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. Take care. Namaste. Thank you for tuning in to Policy Pod, the ORF podcast. Please subscribe to our channel for updates on upcoming episodes.